Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hello, hello everyone. Dr. Hondorf here. Welcome back to this episode of the podcast super excited to dive in with you. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. So glad to have you. Thanks so much for listening. You might be kind of curious what this podcast is all about. So we relate everything in this podcast and corresponding blog back to motivation, but not the hustle and grind kind. So truly sustainable motivation that keeps you feeling energetic, engaged in your life for the long haul. So we talk about why I'm just not motivated is a myth and why the type of motivation is so crucial to fully understand to live a vibrant life consistent with the person you want to be. So if you're ready to learn about motivation, respecting your body in an effective way so you can live a life you truly love, you're in the right place, check out the foundational episodes of the podcast by going to the link in the show notes or going to drshawnhondorp.com. The episode link for today is forward slash 36. But you can also find any episode just by going forward slash one, two, three, and four. So those are the foundational episodes. You're going to get the background about the theory of motivation, why there's an incredible amount of evidence to everything we cover here. And so you can understand it all for yourself. And before I tell you about today's interview, uh, did you, I want to make sure you guys have used the tool to clarify your values. And I, I know the word clarify your values might sound sort of like not very exciting, but let me tell you why it's so crucial to everything we talk about in this podcast. And frankly, like literally in the body respect program that I run, uh, a couple times a year, the number one strategy everyone likes, this is not something we usually do because I was trained in acceptance and commitment therapy, and that's a big part of the therapy. I've done it uh, in my life for a long time now. And getting super clear on what matters to you is the best way to motivate yourself. So if you have not done that yet, it's time to do that. And if you go to the link for today's episode, you'll see a picture of me and my little son. And even just like getting clear, making some notes about what matters to you and even if you have like one or two pictures that just highlights it, it's incredibly important in terms of you consistently staying motivated to do whatever it is you want to do in your life. Um, 
That's truly sustainable motivation. So go to drhondorp.com forward slash goals and get started today. I promise it's never too late to do this and you are not going to regret it. It's everyone's favorite strategy. So make sure you go and grab that today. Okay, so let me tell you about today's interview. So I interviewed Joanna Pistilnik. I am in a, a practice with her. I We practice together at Mind Body Health. And I was like, I have to bring her on because she knows so much about a lot of topics, but a lot about PCOS. It's some, an area of expertise for her. And it's something that I uh, have seen for years, but really needed to learn more about. And I think I'll... I'll tell you, our conversation is a longer one. I will be honest. You guys that listen to this podcast a lot, I'm going to need your feedback because when I had another longer one with Heather Gunn a couple weeks ago, I did split it into two episodes. This one, I'm just going to keep all in one episode because I think this is relevant for everyone, but particularly if you are having symptoms of PCOS or you think you might have it or you've been diagnosed, this one's really important for you. And I just wanted all the information to be in one episode for you. And um, this one also I recorded a while ago. So some of you I know have been excited for it to come out. And, but yeah, if you're like, Sean, these are too long, just tell me. Um, this podcast is for you and I can make some adjustments, but there was just so much to say. And you'll see that Joanna is so knowledgeable and we, we kind of get technical and I was like a little confused myself, but I, I honestly think that understanding your body, your physiology, how it works is so important and empowering. And it doesn't mean you're playing doctor. It doesn't mean that you are, you know, deciding that you are the expert in this area, but it is a way to empower yourself because the reality is that our medical system is not good at looking at root cause and it's not particularly good at understanding women's health and even in this conversation, it's clear that women's health and these processes that impact, you know, fertility, but also hormone balance and weight and eating and all the things we're going to talk about today, they are complex. And this is not, I never want to come across on this podcast as bashing the medical field because the medical field gets the training they get. And you know, it's rooted in uh, treat the symptom model. And that's a lot of what we see with PCOS is you have this symptoms that might meet criteria, lose weight. And not only is that incredibly ineffective, it's also harmful. And, and most, almost all the time is not going to address the root cause. And so on this podcast, we're all about moving away from ineffective diet BS strategies towards stuff that actually works. So we're going to talk about some of the actual treatment recommendations and at the end. So it's like, not just don't do this, but what do you do? And of course, as always, we're going to talk about some main takeaways at the end as well. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Stick with us. I've listened to this interview fully through twice now. And each time I, I learn a little bit more. So you may do the same. Um, but I would love to hear what you think of this. This is a topic that I'm really, really passionate about. Um, I think just in general, women's health and how I believe that women's health and the transition from deciding you want to potentially have a, a kiddo or have a family 
is the most vulnerable time ever, in my opinion. Um, and so we want to make w more women feel empowered during these time periods, whether it's, you know, trying to conceive or pregnancy or labor and delivery. And, and yeah, there's a lot of areas for improvement. We'll just say that. I think most likely in another episode, I will share a little bit about my some of my personal journey and why this matters so darn much to me, but that's for another day because this episode is already long enough. So let's dive in. Um, before we do, as a reminder, this ed uh, podcast and blog are for educational and informational purposes only and should never be construed as any form of professional advice. Uh, so let's dive in. Glad to have you here. All right, so today I have the pleasure of talking with Joanna Pasilnik, and Joanna is a non-diet registered dietitian, certified diabetes care and education specialist, certified intuitive eating counselor, and personal trainer with background in disordered eating and eating disorders, metabolic and digestive health, plant-based nutrition, and fertility and women's health with which with a special focus on polycystic ovary syndrome, which we're going to be diving in in depth today. So Joanna, I'm so excited to have you here. You're a wealth of knowledge. Welcome to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much. I was super excited when I got your invite. So very happy to be here. Wonderful. So we're going to dive into really all things short uh, PCOS. But first, I'd love to have you tell us a little bit more about yourself, maybe why you're so passionate about this work. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I have um, it's sort of a two part answer to this question. Um, and I think first, I'll start with sort of my own experience in my body. Um, and, and some of the, the struggles that I've had, which I never really noticed until I started working PCOS might be, uh, you know, something I've never been diagnosed, but might be something related to PCOS. So I actually had what is considered primary amenorrhea, where I didn't have a period until I was 16. Um, I also had pretty terrible <laughs> acne, which at one point, you know, starting from puberty until, um, you know, mid twenties, I actually had a best friend sort of come to me with a pamphlet. Like, here's a study, like, here's an acne study, like go to, like, go oh. to this study. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I've never been regular, um, at one point in my early twenties, I did go to a doctor and I've always had been privilege. I've always been very lean and, and muscular also, um, naturally, which is sort of a PCOS superpower, um, to be honest with you, um, is muscularity, which is great, but but I, you know, I remember going to this gynecologist and because I think I was, you know, not stereotypically, which we'll dig into, um, what doctors who are uninformed believe, you know, and living in a larger body, I didn't get sort of the, the treatment that I, and the investigation. So they did sort of tell me, oh, I think, you know, you have sort of this ratio of these labs that look like it's diagnostic of PCOS, but you know, you're not overweight. And, and, you know, even though I just had no period for three months and then three yeah. periods in one month, you know, they, yeah. they sort of just said, eh, you're fine. Like if, if you ever want to have babies, you'll have to do fertility treatments. And then they like sent me on my way. And wow. so I, I entered this acne study. Finally, that was a, yeah, it was very dismissive. My experience was not good. 
to, to, I I never really had much help figuring out like, Hey, what is happening with my body? Mm -hmm. Um, and then acne wise, I finally, when my friend handed me that pamphlet, I was like, maybe I need to start really kind of like taking better care of myself. I was like working 30 hours a week while in grad school and not sleeping much and, you know, really stressed, which we'll talk about, you know, in a large percent of women, like PCOS is very stress sensitive, um, condition or syndrome. So, uh, but yeah, so I, luckily I was, um, you know, I worked really hard on self-care, um, and you know, my, my periods eventually evened out, they're still not completely regular. I, I think I skip a cycle every other month. Um, but I don't have the same issues with skin, but essentially, so, so there's that piece. And then that coupled with, you know, my background in diabetes and, and chronic, um, conditions for the first you know, five years of my career. And then I started working in disordered eating, you know, um, several years ago, you know, PCOS is really the sort of, um, you know, there's insulin resistance sort of as it's, you know, one of its bases, um, for, uh, you know, causes, root causes. And then there's also, you know, real risk of disordered eating, um, you know, higher, you know, maybe 11% compared to 7% in some studies. And so when I started kind of working in, this like food relationship world and with my background in diabetes and with my own experience, it really just resonated. And then I started seeing a lot of clients who were getting sort of maltreatment from, from their doctors, you know, not, mm-hmm. and, and all very unique experiences. I mentioned with mine was more dismissive because of my thin privilege and with others, it's, it's more like, you know, Hey, just don't eat actually was one advice from one doctor to a client, just don't eat for 16 hours. So, you know, I started seeing this, um, there's some real harm and pain and, um, connected to this and stigma, weight stigma connected to this diagnosis. So I, uh, and misunderstanding. So, so yeah, I want to sort of be a bastion for, uh, for people struggling, um, with not understanding what's going on with their body. Yeah. I love that. And I think not always, but that can often be the case where we have some personal interest for whatever reason, whether it's related directly to ourselves or someone we love, and then having that combination with the background and, and seeing all the, the gaps. I think there's a lot of gaps and things that are dismissed or things that are missed or things that are overly focused on. Sure. So we're going to dive into all of that today. I think it's going to be really important because I know I have a lot to learn and I also know that there's a lot that like a lot of people that I work with don't know about this and certainly a lot of providers. So let's start with the basics. So what is PCOS? Just absolutely. Yeah. So, so PCOS, um, is it's basically, it's a syndrome, um, polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, and the difference between a syndrome and a condition or a disease is that a disease has sort of like one cause, like we know in a cancer diagnosis, like we know what the cause is, Mm -hmm. but the symptoms might be different. Some people might have nausea, other people might not with, with a syndrome, we don't really know what the, what the cause is 100% or the cause might be very different from one person to the other, but the symptoms are very similar. Mm -hmm. And so and, but also you don't have to have all of the, the symptoms. So taking a step back, if we're thinking about like, how is it diagnosed? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually not a hundred percent, um, sort of agreement in the field. So there are a few, you know, in 1990, the NIH put out sort of the first criteria, um, and it included like hyperandrogenism or like high, high androgens. Right. Um, and the androgens and, and are. Also- 
Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Androgens are, you know, there are a few in our body, but you know, and all as women, we have, we have estrogens and we have testosterone. Androgens are like this, what we think of as like the more male hormones. Mm -hmm. So testosterone, testosterone. Mm DHEAS. Yeah. From mostly from the ovaries and the adrenal glands for the most part. Um, but in, in our bodies, you know, we, we have homeostasis for a lot of different systems. And as women, like, you know, androgens make us feel, uh, you know, sexy and they can, you know, like they increase sex drive and they can increase our focus and concentration. And we, we all, you know, should have them at a level that's not too high or too low. Right. And so PCOS, what we see is we just see, you know, there's this aberration in the stereogenesis where we're having higher levels of, of these that are not, you know, um, kind of that, that cause these symptoms that, that, you know, hair loss and acne and they, they mess with our cycles, our periods. And, um, yeah. So everyone has a balance of both of the different types of hormones, more androgens or more other, like, um, the other hormones, I, I forget, I don't know if those have a name, but they, everyone has a balance, but sometimes in PCOS, one symptom might be a higher, um, androgen. I don't know yeah, what's the word for that, yeah. but higher disproportionately, but to confuse you more, you know, the, uh, <laughs> not all, um, persons, you know, cause not everyone who um, has PCOS identifies as, as females and so not all persons with PCOS have high androgens either. Right. Okay. So like, so so back to the diagnosis criteria, this is where it gets a little sticky. And I think providers can be, you know, can be, um, you know, confused if they're not interested in kind of digging in and learning. Mm-hmm. So the first criteria NIH, you don't need to have polycystic ovaries, right? You just, you know, high, if you had high androgens, um, you know, biochemically mm-hmm. and, uh, or sort of like, if, if we can view, you know, acne, for example, as a sign of, um, of high androgens. So for some people, you don't need to, you know, get the biochemical actual testing of the free testosterone or the DHT, the dehydrotestosterone, you know, maybe you can just say, oh, you know, there's, there's tertiuism, right? There's some growth of hair where there shouldn't be, or there's like the, the androgenic alopecia, the hair loss sort of at the scalp, or, you know, in my case, extreme acne, right. Is a, is a, is a sign. So, you know, that with, um, what we call oligomenorrhea, which is essentially Sean, if you have less less than eight cycles a year. So how I mentioned, like I would go three months and I'm like, where's my period, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. or if you have a cycle that's shorter than 21 days or longer than 35. So anything that's not a normal 21 to 35 day cycle, um, it, or if you just don't have a period, right. So amenorrhea or oligomenorrhea. So that was 1990 moving forward. Two thousand. those two were in 1990, those those two symptoms. Okay. Got it. Absolutely. And as we're learning more 2003, we have what we call the Rotterdam criteria. And Sean, we have to remember like the Rotterdam criteria in 2003 or in 2006, the androgen excess and PCOS society criteria, um, both of those, um, are consensus. Uh, so they're, they're essentially like you get a lot of experts together and they agree on criteria. Okay. So it's, it's the weakest sort of, diagnostic criteria. And that's why I think there's, there's still some disagreement. So the Rotterdam said, Hey, if you have two of three, so it created four phenotypes. If you have, you know, polycystic ovaries and high androgens, or if you have, you know, high androgens and oligomenorrhea, right. Then you're, Mm -hmm. you know, then you're technically diagnosed. And again, it can be lab tests or just on evaluation. And then of course the classic, and I think this is where we get into, um, issues with, 
with providers and weight stigma. Cause again, the, you know, a lot of women go to the doctor and the doctor just says you have PCOS lose weight, which is what does harm. Right. And so the yeah. classic phenotype would be, um, you know, high androgens, um, your cycles are all messed up, right? You have, maybe you only have a few a year, maybe they're really long, maybe they're really heavy. Um, and then you can get like a pelvic ultrasound to see, hey, do you have at least 12 follicles, you know, that are like two to nine millimeters? Like, do you have the classic sort of string of pearls in the right diagnostic amount and size? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's phenotype A, that's the strongest sort of, you know, what we think of. So if we don't know much about PCOS. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So I hope that makes sense. The 2006 criteria basically just built on the Rotterdam criteria a little bit and said, um, you know, you don't, you don't have to, you know, if you like hyperandrogenism is definitely like needed to have it, but um, okay. yeah. And the, yeah, the, and obviously the syndrome has polycystic ovary, ovary syndrome. That's the cysts. Like when you, like you said, when you do the ultrasound, you see the cysts growing on the ovaries, correct? Right. Right. Okay. But you know, what's interesting is like, there is a phenotype where you don't, you know, have to have that right. Uh-huh. Um, yep. Phenotype D you just have maybe high androgens and the periods, which I, I think is, um, you know, the Rotterdam criteria expanded who is going to be diagnosed by 20%. So in a lot of ways, I, it's harmful, but also helpful, um, in that like, okay, so more people are going to know, Hey, what's going on with my body, but because of the way PCOS is dealt with now, I it's, it's actually could be very harmful because Mm -hmm. the last thing I'll say about that, Sean, and I think we need to dig, dig into this as well is hypothalamic amenorrhea, 20 to 30% of people are going to have um, you know, people without, you know, PCOS are going to have cysts on their ovaries. Mm. And a lot of that could be, you know, related to hypothalamic amenorrhea. Are you familiar with that term? Mm-mm. So, no. yeah, so this is, it's the opposite of, you know, so the, the treatment, what doctors tell is, you know, is the opposite of what it should be. So in, let's imagine we have someone who's restricting or over-exercising mm-hmm. um, the body thinks, Oh, wait a minute. We probably shouldn't reproduce right now. There's stress in the environment. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the body, the hypothalamus shuts down and lowers the secretion of the gonadotropins and suppresses ovarian function. Mm -hmm. But this is more, and also someone who has significant weight loss and maybe like over five to 10%. And this could be someone living in any body size. So it it doesn't have to be. Yeah. So, but if we just have like underwear, their body, which is genetically determined, right? Mm -hmm. Wants them to be, Mm -hmm. but what happens is we can have acne in this issue as well. So we can have what some providers might say, you know, Oh, it looks like, uh, you know, androgen excess, right. Upon examination, plus they have oligo or anovulation. So PCOS, and then you have these people who are already, you know, not, you know, sort of in a state of under nutrition being told by their doctor, Right. Oh, yeah. So there's us lose weight. Yeah. I think that's what, one of the reasons I want to have you on is because it seems like that's at least from what I've seen, the most problematic thing. And I know we're going to talk about treatment recommendations in a bit and what's actually recommended and what we see recommended, which is often weight loss, right. And often right. rigidity and often avoiding all sugar and all white flour and all these things. So we'll, we'll get into that, but the, what, what's striking me as we're talking about the criteria is that it's 
you know, kind of honestly a little bit confusing and there's a lot there and, and it's not clear cut, like some, some conditions might have, you know, a very clear cut diagnosis. And I could see the misdiagnosis, like you said, if we have the hypothalamic amenorrhea, (laughs) did I say it right? That one. HA. (laughs) Okay. We'll go with that. HA. And if that's causing that symptom and you don't know why, then I could see this being, yeah, misdiagnosed. It sounds like with PCOS, if maybe that's not actually. And then of course, that's even more harmful when we recommend weight loss in cases where someone's already restrictive, already under eating, already putting their body in a sort in a point of stress and really malnutrition. Is that right? right? Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, it can also be over, um, just over exercise or stress. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the treatment for HA is, Hey, we need you to eat at least, and I don't typically, you know, discuss calories being, um, an intuitive eating, uh, dietitian, but, but really it's like, we need to have at least 2,500 calories. And like, what does that look like? We need to be eating much more. And, and that usually causes a lot of, you know, fear, particularly if there's any disordered eating. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, PCOS really is a diagnosis of exclusion. We have to make sure that there isn't, uh, you know, something else going on with the adrenals, Cushing syndrome, or, you know, um, non-congenital adrenal hyperplasia or hyperprolactinemia, like other things that can impact, um, ovulation. So yeah, there's, there's a lot there. And if we have a provider who's not, who's not knowledgeable in it. So, yeah, you really, and you really need a provider who's willing to do like some pretty investigative work, right? Like it's not a real quick, easy, um, diagnosis. It's going to take some time. Probably it's going to take some evaluation. It's going to take stepping back and looking at the whole picture. And how often do we think this happens? I don't, I know it's probably hard to estimate, but (laughs) it's, it's, you know, I think that there aren't as many as I would like, you know, health at every size sort of, um, uh, willing to investigate and take time, you know, clinicians and primary care doctors out there. Um, so, you know, in my experience with my, well, with my own personal experience, right. Um, and then also with my experience with my clients, you know, they're, they're coming to me very confused and like, I have PCOS, I need to lose weight. I need to cut carbs. I need to intermittent fast or, and, and really the advice they got was go on a low carb diet and, and that's, you know, lose weight, go on a low carb diet. And yeah. there was no discussion about like, Hey, what is the root cause of the PCOS? You know, cause yeah. we can, we can kind of definitely touch on that, you know, there's yeah. inflammation, there's stress, there's definitely, there's a sort of, you know, genetic basis. And, and what we see is like also Sean, like chronic low grade inflammation, mm-hmm. um, in 60 to 80% of women, of persons with PCOS, we have, um, insulin resistance, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and this happens independent of, of body weight, right? So we mm-hmm. have, um, you know, I, I never had my insulin tested back, you know, when I was all, you know, very much my body was not working well and I was very stressed. And, um, and so I don't, I don't know if I had, you know, a level of insulin resistance, but it's, um, in most cases, you know, 75%, even of lean persons with PCOS will have it. Um, and what we do know is that, Hey, okay. So if you have, if you do have, uh, visceral fat above maybe where, uh, the settling point of your body. Um, it, maybe we're, we can see some increased inflammation with that 
visceral fat deposition, but mm-hmm. subcutaneous fat is not pro-inflammatory in the same way. So the advice, you know, to lose weight, it's like, Hey, all of the androgens also independent of obesity. So we see, you know, it, it doesn't matter body size. This is a genetic condition of chronic low-grade inflammation and post-receptor deficit, right? For the insulin receptor mm-hmm. that causes this issue with uh, insulin resistance. And, and so the advice to lose weight to me, as we know, like, um, is across the board with any, anyone is harmful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so causes are multifactorial, but certainly genetics as most things, you know, play a role. And I, I definitely hear that a lot, right? Like a lot of clients that I work right. with have a lot of family history of PCOS, um, usually, but stress and inflammation play a big role and understanding the role and how that's playing in is really an under focused on factor in probably many conditions as well, but certainly with PCOS, correct? Correct. Yeah. And do you want me to dig into a little bit what, what I mean when I, when I'm talking about like the insulin resistance? Uh, yes. Cause I think I've heard insulin resistance my whole (laughs) career and I have a sense of it, but I actually find it to be sort of still confusing. So I'm sure I'm not alone in that. So yes, let's, let's chat about that. Cause that's a really core feature of um, PCOS, right. For many people. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And, you know, it really is all interconnected. We have these pathways that give, you know, feedback to each other. So for example, um, we, so, you know, let's, let me take a step back and let's talk about like what is happening. And then we can talk about maybe what, what some of the causes there are. So, um, so basically in, in our hyperthalamus, um, it sort of is in charge. It's like the CEO of everything else. Um, so it releases a couple things along the like hypothalamic ovarian um, pathway. So it's going to release gonadotropin hormone. And now in 40% of persons with PCOS, we ha- what we see is this high LH or luteinizing hormone. So when the hypothalamus releases gonadotropin um, releasing hormone to the pituitary, it signals the pituitary to release FSH follicle stimulating hormone, right. Which acts on the first part of our menstrual cycle. So our menstrual cycle, we, you know, we bleed and then we have the follicular phase where the ovary is starting to grow its follicles or antral follicles. The um, anti-molan hormone comes in and it kind of says, you're the dominant one. And, you know, we're going to help you grow. And, and then that's supposed to, you know, cause that one to grow. And then the luteinizing hormone surges, and that's supposed to cause the um, ovary to release the egg. There's ovulation, right? Um, and, and then the, the, the ovary sort of starts, um, you know, if, if we have, uh, you know, pregnancy that takes place, if we, if we have conception, then the, it turns into like this corpus luteum that stays and that releases continued progesterone. If we don't, it's going to turn into this corpus luteum release progesterone. And then that's going to precipitously drop if we find out, Hey, we didn't actually get pregnant. And then the progesterone signals the, the endometrium to release the, the, um, the extra tissue, right. And that's Mm -hmm. their period. So essentially that's, what's supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. What happens in PCOS is we have, again, 40% of women, this gonadotropin hormone is pulsing very, very fast. So that causes the LH to be high. 
as we see, you know, it's usually a one to one, two to one ratio in PCOS. We can see it, you know, four to one, five to one, right, compared to the FSH. So in PCOS, the FSH never quite gets high enough to stimulate the, the, the follicles to grow enough. Um, so the antimolar hormone, we also see that's very high. It's trying to get a dominant follicle, right? But that's really what those cysts are, are these anterior follicles that grew, grew, grew. They're like two to three times more in PCOS than normal women, but never actually got to a dominant follicle. So the body then has to go, oh, let's try that again, right? And release mm-hmm. the gonadotropin hormone. And that's why we see these missed ovulations. And okay. also, honestly, an increased risk of endometrial cancer as well with mm-hmm. PCOS because we have this okay. growth of the tissue and it never quite gets to, you right. know, uh, shed. Right. All right. So are, are you with me, Sean? I know it's a lot. I think but... so. <laughs> I think okay. so. Okay. It is okay. a lot. So... It's con- I was <laughs> it like, women's health is confusing. No wonder so many <laughs> physicians very... like have a hard time wrapping their head around it, right? <laughs> well, let me, t- to simplify, the LH being high and the FSH not being where it needs to be in 40% of cases, that's a root cause and that's a genetic basis, right? But that also is something that can be a feedback loop from infl- inflammation and excess insulin. So that could actually make that worse. Okay. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so already, we can have, yeah, with anything like the genes are sort of causal and then environment or stress level and all the things are going to impact how it shows up in our bodies. Exactly. And that's, that's really, that's great is to think about like PCOS shows up very differently for different people, but also lifestyle does impact again, that spectrum of symptoms. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. And so And the other thing, the hypothalamus is also releasing sort of signals to the adrenal glands. I'll try to just simplify signals to the adrenal glands. Um, And what can happen that adrenal corticotropic hormone is like the adrenal glands in PCOS. And I think this is also a genetic basis. We really don't know, but we see this like sensitivity to stress. And so the adrenal glands um, sort of are signaled to release cortisol. Right. And, and this can increase also a form of an androgen that is in 25% of cases, um, with PCOS elevated dehydroepiandosterone. And it is, um, it definitely then increases, um, the, just the overall negative symptoms that we see. Is that um, something they can test for? Like, yeah, that yeah. Hormone that you just said. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so the adrenals also contribute to, um, you know, the, the sort of insulin resistance as well, because stress, like the, you know, the cortisol, the fight or flight, like that really is a sort of physiological, um, uh, insulin resistant state as well. So that's another area. So for, for some people, you know, in 10%, um, this is the only androgen that's elevated. Okay. You know, so okay. for some people there's, there's normal sort of like release of androgens from the ovaries, but we have this sensitivity to stress that causes problems. Okay. Um, yeah. So again, it's like, I mean, I always say like stress is good for none of us, but this <laughs> is going to amplify the negative impacts of stress potentially for folks with that, like PCOS in general, but even perhaps specific types within that, like it's even more essential for them to be considering their stress management piece. And, and I wonder too, this comes back to like the commonality of it, but, um, I would imagine since it's a syndrome, 
like I'm sure many of us, myself included, can be like, well, I've certainly had some of those symptoms, right? Maybe not enough to meet criteria, but it just makes me wonder, is it like, is it on a continuum? I mean, how much do all of us need to be thinking about like, okay, maybe I meet some criteria, but not all, like how much do we need to be considering just how our bodies are functioning in this way as a broader um, continuum, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, so for example, with the HA, we were discussing the, you know, the state of your hypothalamus lowering your gonadotropin releasing hormone because of maybe inadequate calories, over-exercise, too much stress. LH is actually uh, low in, in those mm-hmm. cases, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and, but, but I think the stress in, does impact everyone. So like I said, everything on a spectrum, PCOS, we might have more sensitivity to stress, but yeah, we're all susceptible. Absolutely. Yeah. Stress has like the, the negative effects on you know, I worked with a client once who was diagnosed with diabetes, um, a man as A1C was 11 upon diagnosis. And they wanted to immediately start him on insulin. Anything over 6.5 is, um, is considered diabetes. And he led a very, very stressful lifestyle, um, traveled around the country, you know, uh, and, and staying in hotels and just by changing his lifestyle and his stress levels, his A1C dropped back down to in the 5% range without insulin or medication. And so if we're, if we're talking about, okay, you know, we're all susceptible to stress causing insulin resistance. And I guess, Sean, I'll take a step back if it's okay to talk about like this insulin receptor. Mm -hmm. So in PCOS, there is a genetic reason for this post receptor. So there's, you know, insulin receptor RIS one. And what we see is that there's this increased sort of it's, it's like this serine phosphorylation that happens on this receptor, which essentially means there's something that happens with these, you know, kinase enzymes that causes insulin resistance. And it's literally, it's a genetic phenotype. And what we also see is these increase in this like serine kinases, you know, so I, I don't know if you've heard of like T, TNF alpha, which is okay. And, um, you know, like mTOR, which is, uh, you know, actually they're studying it related to aging as well. It's very, it's very fascinating. Um, I feel like I've heard some of these things, but I don't, I don't know much. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's okay. It's, it's, um, I get really excited. So like, I hope I'm not being too technical, but essentially there are, there's this enzymatic action that's happening in these kinases that they're causing these receptors. There's nothing sort of like you know, defective about the actual receptor. It's this post receptor enzymatic action that's causing insulin resistance in PCOS. We mm-hmm. think it's called the serine fossilization hypothesis. And the okay. same sort of increase in this enzymatic activity also works on CPY17, which is this ovarian um, androgen production protein. So it also in like, so basically just think there are all these increased enzymes that are genetically there, but also can increase because of inflammation and stress. And there's a feedback loop with elevated insulin being a stressor. So it's sort of this sort of self maintaining issue, inflammation, insulin resistance causes high insulin. And then the ovaries are then triggered to increase androgen production. And then the insulin receptor cannot function the way it's supposed to. So imagine Sean, like a key in a lock, right. Is how it's supposed to work. Insulin, insulin receptor, Mm -hmm. but someone put gum in the lock. You have the key, the locks there, it's just not working. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of what we see in PCOS 
leading to, of course, doctors saying don't eat carbs, but really I think what, why aren't we talking more about inflammation Mm -hmm. and like, and also, you know, if we have a high, no carbs, we have high protein, we have a high fat diet, high protein increases one of these serine kinases, Mm -hmm. um, and high fat increases another one. Okay. Therefore increasing actually insulin resistance. So yes, you're not eating as many carbs, but you might be exacerbating the root cause. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So yeah, I'll take a definitely. step back. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that is pretty technical. And I love that you are working to understand that because I think obviously we need more understanding around this in general, because, um, and this is sort of maybe a separate conversation, but related, but even with that, um, man, you described as an example. So often people are put on insulin, particularly what I've seen for type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. And then it's very challenging. They're also told to lose weight. Right. And it's very challenging to do that. And then that becomes, this like, I would imagine there's a feedback loop there that's sort of related, but separate to our discussion of PCOS too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what we see is, you know, anything you read, um, and, and it's so interesting. I went into my old textbook, it's 1300 pages, Sean. And I wanted to see like, what did they say about PCOS in my old nutrition textbook? And there's mm-hmm. one small little thing on one page, just wow. describing like, here's what it is. Here's the diagnostic criteria and lose weight. And the reason for that is like, wow. we do have these you know, fat cells, these adipocytes that they're not metabolically inert. They do actually release some of these, um, inflammatory cytokines as well, um, which are signaling molecules that signal again. And and basically they're just messing with these pathways. Um, but again, subcutaneous fat, right. Which is, um, most of the fat in our bodies is not under the skin fat, right. Is that exactly? The, the yeah, you know, term of it. Yeah, exactly. So versus when I say visceral, visceral fat, which is in the organs. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, absolutely. Or around so, the organs, that is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and we can have visceral fat in any sized body, and that's yeah. more to do with like you know maybe being over sedentary, maybe being stressed. The body sort of preferentially, preferentially like you know lays down visceral fat when we are stressed and inflamed. Yes. That is one thing that like you hear a lot when people are advertising the cortisol related drugs, but that's actually (laughs) true, right? That there is more fat deposition in the like belly area with stress. Um, and that they claim their drugs are going to fix it with that. That part's not true, but, um, (laughs) that's yeah. And okay. Yeah. So let's, um, well, and so I want to make sure people know, like, if they don't have a diagnosis, but they're like, yeah, some of these symptoms, like what should they be looking out for, um, to maybe talk to their doctor about, I know we've talked about a couple, um, the, I can't even pronounce this one, hertruism or like the hair mm-hmm. and like, like on areas where you wouldn't expect it normally, right. Like right. on your chin or something like that, that could be one. What, uh, can we just remind yeah. you the symptoms yeah, just so folks like, what, can what know. do we do with this? <laughs> yeah. And, and is this, does this fit me? Right. I, I would imagine people are asking that, like, is this, could this be me? Cause I'm sure most of us can identify some symptoms. So, yeah, absolutely. And, um, great question. So, it, you know, I think again, it's important to know that like you, the symptoms are going to, you know, how this shows up for you, it can show up that you can have hidden PCOS. Number one, if you're on, um, an oral contraceptive pill that can actually kind of smooth out some of the hormonal abnormalities we see. Mm-hmm. Um, cause what we do see is the testosterone again, lowers the estrogen. We see like 
And, and also like, if we're not ovulating, we don't have that progesterone from, mm-hmm. from the corpus luteum anyway. So, yeah, so but if you don't on, have these symptoms, it doesn't mean it doesn't apply necessarily, but yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And, and also, even if you're having a normal period, like in 20 to 30% of cases of people who do have high androgens, they're having what looks like a normal period, but they're not actually ovulating. Okay. So so essentially what can we do? There are a lot of lab tests that, that we can take. Um, and you know, in a lot of cases, the majority of people are going to have free testosterone that's elevated. So there's like DHT, that's the active form of testosterone. Mm-hmm. And that could, that could look normal. Right. Um, and that sometimes is what is measured. So I would really encourage, you know, having, um, your free testosterone measured, and you can do that from, you know, the, getting your testosterone levels and also your sex hormone binding globulin, which is something that's also low in PCOS. Um, so anyway, like the doctor, if they say, you know, I don't know how to do that, or that's, you know, the, the specificity is an issue because a lot of these tests that test for male androgens, they're not sensitive enough to test for our female levels that are still causing problems. Does that okay. make sense, Sean? So, yeah. So anyway, so free, free testosterone and, yeah. um, and, and, and also we need to know, you know, like if what's happening with your insulin. And so for diabetes, Sean, we, diabetes is really, uh, you know, a condition of elevated glucose and PCOS is really a syndrome of like elevated insulin. And so if we're looking, if we're testing our A1C, which is what we test for in diabetes, which is a measure of your average blood glucose over three months, we're not, you know, it might be completely normal. It doesn't mean that you don't have elevated insulin though. So we really need okay. to dig in and have like an insulin assay, which is not always covered by insurance. And also doctors are not always wanting to do that, mm-hmm. but, and alternatively, um, if it's, if we can't do the insulin testing, then we can have an oral glucose tolerance test, which is where they oh, get yeah. you know, 50 grams of, of glucose and they can drink this yucky drink. I don't know if you did that when you were pregnant. Oh yeah. <laughs> Everyone hates that <laughs> one. Fun. I didn't hate it as much as some people. I'm like, whatever. It's like an orange drink. It's not that bad. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't great though. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, but it tells us a lot about like what, what's happening at, you yeah. know, at the two hours measuring it two hours hours later. So, yeah. so anyway, so, you know, so we need to test the androgens. Um, mm-hmm. we need to test the insulin levels. And then also if you're curious, like, am I ovulating, um, you know, really checking that, um, that luteinizing hormone, right. You know, can be helpful, but we have to check it at a specific time, right? Like, yeah. So it'd be very 14, helpful you know? to have a provider who's knowledgeable, obviously. Um, there's some things you could do on your own, but that would be challenging to navigate. I would imagine, um, not impossible. You'd have to really know what you're looking for and knowing, yeah. but hopefully we can have more providers who are willing to understand this. Um, and do the right yeah. tests, but, but going back to like, sim- so some people may have no symptoms. That's definitely what I'm hearing, right. but they might have irregular periods. They might have difficulty, um, getting pregnant, right. If they're right. trying to, um, the, yeah, the like hertruism or the hair in different places. Um, are there any other symptoms that people should be yeah. just an, keeping well, an eye out for? Absolutely. So the, there is, you know, doctors, again, this can be diagnosed without any of the testing, right? Cause there's also the transvaginal ultrasound I mentioned before yeah, is also diagnostic, yeah. right. To see like, Hey, do we actually have cysts? And then the lab tests for androgens and insulin, as I mentioned, but also if you're coming in and you're saying, you know, here, you know, I have no period, 
right? Or I have less than eight cycles a year and like really giving that history. And then there is like a scale for hertuism, um, the Fairman Galloway scale, where they look at nine different places on the body and they sort okay. of grade it based on hair. So that's number one. And when hair is showing up in areas, you know, terminal hair is like that, that hair that we think of when we see a man with chest hair, right? It's like these fine little hairs and androgen turns them into these dark terminal hairs. So okay. again, like, are we growing, you know, are we having hair in our chest? Are we having hair under our chin? Um, so a lot of these things can be visualized, you know, what is, what is your degree of acne? And, and we're not talking about just like one little pimple that might pop up, mm-hmm. but I know for me, when I went in for my acne study, they, they were like, you need to have at least 40 you know, blemishes and he stopped counting. Like <laughs> He's like, yeah, you're good. <laughs> like, you know, so I think when we say acne, it's like, it's, it's, it's definitely acne. That's, I mean, okay. these it's are really not like are... one little hair. On the right. Thing. right. Like it's a bigger, like, yeah, they should be affecting your, your quality of life. And, okay. and again, the only reason I'm saying that is I think overdiagnosing PCOS is definitely a problem. Like if you're going in and you just have some, some cycles, um, you know, and they can also test progesterone, which is typically low, but you know, we don't want to overdiagnose. Uh, we want to make sure. Yeah. That, yeah. that this is, is, um, cause, cause really does, does the diagnosis, you know, cause is, is it helpful or is it harmful in terms of how that person is then going to be treated? Right. Right. And so, yeah, let's, it maybe move well before we move on to treatment because I think we definitely want to talk about that. There are there's a little a lot of misconceptions and misunderstanding and myths. So let's touch on a few of those because I think that that's really important. And then we'll talk about treatment if that's cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, the misunderstanding again, you know, in in the general population, the and I don't even love the terms overweight or obese, right? Because it implies mm-hmm. that there's a weight we all should be, but, but and just it's based you know, on BMI, which is crap, <laughs> which is crap, right? For the individual person, it was yeah. made to be used in large scale for research. Um, but, but, you know, having to work in the world that we're in using these terms. All right. So, you know, the, we estimate that, you know, 70% of people in America are fitting into these categories. Um, mm-hmm. And now for PCOS, it's the estimation is 50 to 80%, right. Are fitting into these categories. And so the idea that, you know, PCOS, Hey, you got to lose weight, right. Doesn't make any sense because as a general population, this is, looks pretty congruent to me. Right. And, and now we do have, again, some of these phenotypes that have, you know, much higher insulin resistance from a genetic basis, or maybe contributing stress or lifestyle, um, sure. Right. And, and, and that can be exacerbated by maybe some of that increased visceral fat, but again, we can talk about lifestyle changes if that is the case, but in other cases, we should be talking about the root cause. And, and that really is taking a look at what, what are your stress levels? What is your diet quality? What is your food relationship? Again, we see, um, you know, uh, you know, increased risk of binge eating. And, and I'm wondering, yes, yes, absolutely. Insulin, insulin resistance can cause these cravings. Absolutely. We can have an increased risk of like, of, um, reactive hypoglycemia, which is we eat something insulin shoots way too high. Cause we have a lot of insulin in our system again, because the receptors aren't functioning and crashes down. And then we have these like cravings two hours later, like th- this is not an issue with like willpower. Like this is, mm-hmm. this is actually an insulin problem. 
So I I think the low carb diet, what we see is if we go under 30%, Sean of our, and this is again, one of the real misconceptions. If we go under 30% of our calories from carbohydrate, and again, we're not counting or anything, but this is just in research, what we've um, kind of realized Mm -hmm. if we, if we're eating a low carb diet, like we've always known that actually increases insulin resistance. Right. Mm-hmm. And it causes which the body. That's can really read, not you know. well known like that. I've learned that through some of the training that I've done, but that's a really big, yeah. I would think a lot. I think a lot of people would hear that and be like, wait, what? Because that's not <laughs> that's what not we're told <laughs> about carbs. Right. Like we're told yeah. reduce carbs to reduce, like to treat diabetes. Right. And we've dispelled that myth on this podcast before, but I think it bears just, I just wanted to <laughs> highlight that a little <laughs> yeah. bit because that is not the norm, but no, yeah. so and, say, and say that again. Resistance. Yeah. So yeah. you're going to get a lot of resistance from diet culture on this too. So for example, you know, like someone coming off the keto diet and they check their blood sugars when they start eating carbs again. And they're like, oh my God, I can't eat carbs. My blood sugar is so high. No, there's actually, they're still in an insulin resistant state because mm-hmm. of the low carb, high protein, high fat diet, right? So if we decrease one macronutrient, thereby we're increasing the other two. And remember the in like too high free fatty acids, too high amino acids increase that sort of physiological, you know, enzymatic action that increases insulin resistance. And that could also increase cravings, right? Oh, absolutely. Because if we're thinking, you know, if we're not eating enough carbs, our neuropeptide Y is going to be upregulated. That is the, the sort of messenger to the hypothalamus. Remember the CEO that's always sort of monitoring our blood sugar levels and what's happening in our body. And, and so it signals to our hypothalamus, like, Oh my God, I need sugar. (laughs) The body needs sugar. And so it's a very specific like signal to the body yeah. when you're not eating enough carbs to go that's kind that of more carbs. That's, yeah. That's very, I think fascinating. I think will be helpful too, for folks that, I mean, certainly I've worked with a lot of folks who have done a variety of different types of diets, but it might certainly be more ketogenic type diets maybe before they work with me and then they stop and they maybe try intuitive eating, for example. And then they, we certainly talk about like the, the, the restriction piece and like the right. undernutrition and the impact of low calories and how that's going to sometimes have you like craving things. But we talk sometimes maybe too much about the psychological restriction piece, which is I think very important. And I often talk about, there's like a biological component, but I don't always know the exact like mechanisms behind it, but that's really interesting. So, and I right. think that can be empowering for people to hear, right. It's like, yeah, there, yes, I have been restricting and telling myself I can't have bread. And so that's part of the reason I want bread, but there's also this strong biological drive to bread. And this is relevant yeah. to PCOS and not as well, but what's well, everybody, you know, like, yeah. living in diet culture, it's relevant too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, it's interesting in terms of like another misconception, right. It's like, because of these messages and, you know, a lot of the, the sort of like continual, like trying to lose weight, if you're again, living in diet culture with PCOS, you know, when they've studied it, the intake of women or, you know, in this particular study, it was women with PCOS was around 1400 calories. And then the control group non PCOS was around 1700. So they were actually, you know, when we've studied it, like this idea of like, Oh, you need to continue to try to lose weight. Like, you know, 1400 is, is I think not enough, right. <laughs> you know, so we're already, you know, in this state of like stress and trying to under eat and, and, you know, because of these hormonal aberrations in PCOS, like weight loss is going to be more difficult. And, yeah. you know, like, 
and, and not something that we should be aiming for necessarily as the goal, right? Like right. I think there are a lot of other better goals to address the, the root causes. Right. And so many people feel like there's something wrong with my body. It's this weird sort of balance of like, there's validating that there might be a reality to like your body might on average burn less calories perhaps. Right. But it's also hard to know. And it's maybe in that study, they weren't different in terms of like dieting, restricting or not, but there's, it's hard to sometimes know what, what's causing what, but like, how much is it the restricting that's making my body only burn that much? And how much is it the, just the fact that my body might burn less than someone else without as much insulin resistance or burn less at rest? Absolutely. And Sean, like, remember the discussion of the HA, right? We can have PCOS and HA. So we can yeah. have the, the genetic sort of chronic low-grade inflammation that causes the ovarian androgens and some of the insulin resistance and also, you know, feedback loop to maybe increase the LH more um, while also having, you know, undernutrition that also signals to the hypothalamus to further shut down, you know, fertility. And, and exacerbates the issue, right? Because a low calorie diet actually increases cortisol and, and maybe those adrenal androgens. Yeah. So, yeah. And that, um, you know, jumping to this, one of the reasons I, well, I had a lot of reasons I wanted to have this conversation, but one thing that I hear a lot lately is women from their physicians or medical providers telling them they need to lose weight, sometimes a lot of weight before trying to become pregnant to have the best chance for a healthy pregnancy. And this is happening in women with and without PCOS, but pretty commonly among Mm -hmm. folks with PCOS. So obviously this is problematic. Can you speak, what would you want those women to know as they pursue this goal? That's really important to them of wanting to become a mom. What would you want them to know about their bodies and this message yeah. that they're getting. So I think this is, this Such one kind of hits, question. hits home. Like this one gets me a bit, like <laughs> I could like cry thinking about it. So let's, yeah. let's dive into yeah. it. I think it's really important. Yeah, let's do it. So, um, I love this topic too. Um, and, and actually this is one of, you know, one of the areas that I really work and my ideal client. Um, so, and I say it's interesting because you know, Walter Willett out of Harvard, right? He took data from the nurses health study, which is one of the largest scale studies where they, you know, they followed these women and, um, you know, over, I don't remember the exact number of years. Yeah. It was like yeah. 20, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so he took this data and he came up with what he calls like the, his fertility diet. And it's a really good data. Right. And so, um, if we're thinking just generally, what he found was a diet that is low in animal protein, particularly red meat, high in um, you know plant-based protein, even soy, right? Which is uh, gets a really bad rap. Um, yep, it's a whole other conversation, uh-huh. but um, <laughs> um, and and legumes and you know very anti-inflammatory fruits, vegetables, and also interestingly enough, um, in grains as well, and also in um, the, oh my gosh, I lost my train of thought, Sean. Oh, oh yes. Thank you. (laughs) Interesting (laughs) enough. Um, dairy. So dairy in this particular study, he found like whole fat dairy was helpful, Hmm. right? So women eating like a serving of whole fat dairy a day actually had increased ovulation rates. So, um, low fat dairy, like pulls out a lot of the feminine hormones and leaves the androgens. So again, it could exacerbate, um, 
androids, right? So anyway, so, so if we're thinking of the fertility diet and then we're juxtaposing that with the diet recommended for PCOS women, um, which is like, you know, I've heard some experts in, in you know, so-called experts saying, you know, eat more of a paleo diet, right? Like cut out legumes and whole grains and just eat like meat and fruits and vegetables. Um, but the data that we have for like, this is helpful for fertility that no, like actually like, let's eat a more, you know, a, pl- a more plant-based diet, but include your lean, your favorite lean proteins, include everything you want eat, mm-hmm. you know? So again, talk, getting back to the food relationship, like what are the foods that you really enjoy? Like, let's include those. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the last thing, you know, with PCOS in particular, I, I think, you know, if we, I don't think we need to lose So I guess the, you know, I don't think we need to focus on the weight loss if we're interested in getting pregnant, but you know, there's a really great study that's talking about exercise versus a low calorie diet. And the exercise group had less absolute weight loss, increased ovulation rates and decreased insulin resistance versus Mm -hmm. a low calorie diet. So, you know, I would rather say like, okay, let's talk about behavior stress. Number one. Right. Um, and, and also, you know, are we moving joyfully? Can we increase that movement? We know there are a lot of benefits there for ovulation, Mm -hmm. um, without having to think and worry about weight. Right. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we can take a look at the quality of our diet. We don't want you to, we don't need restriction, right? Because restriction can actually shut down ovulation, but maybe we can through a gentle nutrition, intuitive eating lens, talk about like, Hey, what kind of vegetables do you like? What kind of fruits do you like? You do ever eat beans, right? Are you getting an adequate amount of protein? Um, are you, you know, are you getting an adequate amount of, you know, anti-inflammatory phytochemicals, isoflavones, flavonoids, et cetera. Um, and to help decrease inflammation in general, we know is good for ovulation. So yeah, I hope, I hope that all makes sense, but it does. It's really, um, yeah, there, it sounds like the message really is like, there's a lot that you can control and we do not need to stress about weight. Doing so is very likely to be counterproductive because not only because it literally can shut down ovulation from the HA response, but also because of the stress associated with focus on weight loss and feeling really ineffective. Um, that's a lot of something we talk about a lot in this podcast of this, like feeling of competence that is stripped from, from people when they're feeling ineffective, like this goal they want so bad, whether it's to get pregnant or not this goal that they want so bad and they work really hard and it feels completely ineffective and it's this failure cycle. So that's a really big piece and not focusing on weight loss is very evidence-based. And also there's a lot we can do with exercise, joyful movement and nutrition. Like you said, gentle nutrition is the way that intuitive eating talks about it. And but that's really interesting. So it's, it, it, the good news is it's pretty similar to like, we talk about some evidence-based nutrition on this podcast, which is like, I, I never want to simplify it, but it's like more plants, relatively fewer animal protein, red meat. That's all the same. But the one difference for this fertility piece that I haven't heard as much before is like that adding in some full fat, um, you said full fat dairy. So we like, Whole, yeah. yo- whole milk yogurt, maybe, or like something like that. Yeah. It has, it has some, you know, extra, I mean, we know like dairy does have, it, it comes from a lactating, you know, mother cow. So, you know, it does have some hormones and whatever, yeah. you know, we, we do need enough estrogen to stimulate, um, ovulation. So, you know, that that's helpful. Um, and the last thing, you know, I, I, I will say about that is in terms of inflammation, like I really, I really think that we, if there's one thing to focus on an anti-inflammatory diet, like even in the ovaries, there's, there are receptors for what we call AGEs or advanced, um, application end products, which are from, Mm -hmm. 
you know, essentially um, a, a pro-inflammatory diet. And again, like food relationship is always the most important thing. So we have to talk about like what foods do you want to include? Yeah. But we do know that these pro-inflammatory diets, we have these sort of like receptors for the AG, um, the AGEs in the, in the ovary and, and they decrease ovulation on these diets. So they've studied mm-hmm. sort of a high AGE versus low AGE diet. So high AGE, we can just maybe think of more of a Western style diet, to be honest yeah. with you, low AGE is more, um, of all the foods actually mentioned. And I mentioned for the fertility diet, right? Yeah. Um, so what would be some of the like anti-inflammatory diet? I know that's probably a lot of things, but what are some things people can maybe take away from that? Um, I'd yeah, absolutely. A lot of options, <laughs> lots, of, lots of colors and fruits and vegetables, <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, and I will even say like, there was a study where resveratrol, which is like the antioxidant in red wine, um, actually go. like, like decreases androgen production through the CPY 17 protein in the ovaries. Right. So like, you're thinking like even a glass of red wine is anti-inflammatory. And I know we've heard that, but there's a very you know, real reason for that. There's, um, but essentially if we're thinking about, and and I know we've all heard like the eat the rainbow thing, but like each food has like, uh, antioxidant connected to it that gives it that color. Right. And, and cruciferous vegetables in particular have been found to be really helpful for women with PCOS because of this, because they're so anti-inflammatory. So broccoli, Broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, fruits, vegetables also, um, you know, I, I do think the, that, you know, beans and grains also very high fiber, they help pull out sort of excess androgens from the body, but also have their own sort of, um, you know, because fiber also is anti-inflammatory, right? Like by pulling out toxins, um, omega-3s, right? So, mm-hmm. um, fish, chia seeds, walnuts, um, hemp seeds, flaxseed in particular, mm-hmm. um, very important for anti, for, um, fighting inflammation. And then also, you know, sources of vitamin D or even a vitamin D supplement, you know, talking to their doctor, uh, mm-hmm. we see a lot of low levels of vitamin D and PCOS, which can mm-hmm. impact ovarian function. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of plant foods are going to be the foods that have those natural antioxidants, but also, you know, getting adequate protein to support cellular, um, function. Mm-hmm. Um, So, so I really, I really advocate Sean, like moderate, you know, carb throughout the day, um, and, and protein pacing and trying to, you know, focus on including the fruits and vegetables you do like as often as you can, but again, relationship always number one. So we have to really evaluate, you know, um, are you doing something because you feel like you should, and is that going to manifest somewhere else or, but how can we actually make these foods enjoyable? Right. Satisfying. Right. Yeah. And make it. Yep. That's a lot of things that we, I love to talk about here is like, how do we make it, um, you know, sort of an inside out, like a a process, not focus on weight loss, but focus on, yeah. Whether you think about it as nourishing or self-care or whatever that is, um, or feeling good. It's, it's always this like fine line of being really honest with yourself about that. (laughs) And what's the real why behind it? Because it's easy to fall back and into old traps. And in terms of, absolutely anti-inflammatory is like spices and like, is that also yeah, like, is there, yeah, there's yeah. good evidence there. Right. I just wanted to ask. Yeah. That I was just thinking well, I forgot learned to a little spices bit about and fresh herbs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, cinnamon in particular actually, you know, helps with insulin sensitivity. Um, you know, we hear a lot about, uh, about, t- uh, turmeric. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, and the component in turmeric, um, curcumin. So I 
I think across the board, whatever spice it is, you know, cardamom, cinnamon, um, they, they're going to be largely beneficial because, you know, there's some anti-inflammatory, um, activity. I don't think we need to get carried away with excess amounts or, you know, taking individual supplements. I think, you know, if we can focus on what are the, and fresh herbs as well, like what are the spices and the herbs that I really enjoy? Like, and, and how can I include those? Or, you know, I saw a funny meme the other day, like, yeah, I love oatmeal. When I add 17 things to it, it tastes great. You know, mm-hmm. But like, we can really think about what are some of these plant-based foods that maybe we could spruce up with yeah. herbs and, and spices and, and actually maybe they would be enjoyable. Um, yeah. One of the things that I've talked a little bit on here about is like we, um, here in Grand Rapids, they have a good culinary medicine program. And I feel like that if people are like, well, don't diet, well, what do I do? Don't restrict calories. Cool. Like I like to focus on what do you add in and all that. But one thing you could do is like, if it sounds fun to you is take like a cooking class. And that's what I did with this class is I learned about spices and I'm like, oh, okay. Cooking is not a natural skill for me. So anyway, just wanted to throw (laughs) it out there. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. So if you could, if that sounds fun to you, that would be a cool way to like feel empowered and feel like it's something I'm doing that, um, can really benefit my body and doesn't have to be focused on weight loss. So I just wanted to, to say that real quick, but, um, is there, so, so we kind of did end up talking about like, yeah, kind of general recommended treatment, obviously stress management relationship with food is a huge piece that, um, many times can be helpful to work with a professional on either, dietitian or, you know, the psychologist or a therapist, but, um, is there other things as we're, I want to get to our motivation questions that we ask everyone, but are there other (laughs) things that before we wrap up that you really want people to know who have PCOS or think they might, or, or what are the main takeaways you'd love them to know? Well, I think the main takeaway is, you know, a lot of PCOS can be very disrupted for our sense of positive embodiment. Right. Um, but I think, you know, you mentioned, um, early on, like, you know, maybe a family predisposition for, for cancer, um, in our previous conversation. Um, and I know in my family, I, you know, diabetes. So I think with PCOS, we have to remember there's, um, there is a genetic basis and we, we should, you know, work towards this sort of acceptance of our body, um, and self, and this can be a big process. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, cause a lot of, a lot of women find that, you know, it's very frustrating and, and are frustrated with their body and that can impact their ability, you know, um, or rather desire for self-care. So I think the yeah. first thing is, you know, Hey, like this is, this is a genetic like condition. This is genetically based. We've identified genes, right? And, and that can, and, and also, um, you know, working towards and being honest with ourselves about like, do we need support with the food relationship and to get to a place of, you know, food harmony and, and, but really essentially it's not your fault and it's, and, yeah. and self-love. Yeah. Which can yeah. be a process, but yeah, definitely. And as you're talking too, I think one thing that's been really helpful for our family, I think, and one thing that like in terms of our genetic predisposition for cancer is thinking about like, we all have genetic mutations and polymorphisms and like things going on with our genes that we actually mm-hmm. don't know a lot about, but like it's existing in all of us, like 
PCOS also would fall into that category, right? Like, yes, there is some genetic predisposition. We need to acknowledge that, but it doesn't mean like anything's wrong with your body. It's not like defective. And cause I think a lot of people struggle with the immense amount of shame about why isn't my body functioning in the way that it should quote unquote. And I think that we talk a lot about shame on this podcast. Cause it's like just festers under the surface and right. prevents actual change. It prevents us from seeking help. It prevents us from doing all these things. And I, I would imagine that's incredibly relevant here. So right. Absolutely. being able to sort of like say that and say like, there's nothing wrong. It's like you said, it's not your fault. And also there's nothing defective about your body. It's just your right. body has a specific gene type that predisposes predisposes this syndrome, but that's, um, like we all have things in our genes that predispose us to a variety of things. Like nobody has like perfect genes. No, no one. Right. (laughs) Right. But, and, and, you know, it's self-compassion, like the research by, um, Krista Neff, I'm sure you're familiar. Yeah. Like that, if we are self-compassionate, we are more likely to change the behavior, right. That's causing us stress. Right. So I think um, you know, self-compassion, but also, you know, I, I, I would, uh, I would say, and just, you know, with my experience with clients and also with myself, um, you know, changing a lot of my behaviors really improved my symptoms vastly. Um, and, yeah. and had nothing independent of, of, you know, anything to do with body size, just in terms of, you know, I think we, we can see an improvement in how we feel and how, and the symptoms we're experiencing that are causing us um, stress with, with just lifestyle behaviors. But again, I think working towards lifestyle behaviors that, you know, bring you joy, right. Again, like the joyful movement, not feeling the stress of like, I need to exercise, but like, Hey, how can you move your body in a way? And how can you eat in a way that you enjoy? Um, so I think, again, I think that the combination of intuitive eating with PCOS treatment is so, so vital. Um, yeah, because otherwise it it can feel so much more effective. Whereas when you accidentally or on purpose are focused on the weight loss cycle, it feels very ineffective. We, you and I were just touching on that. So if it feels really ineffective, that means you're probably, probably caught up in the weight loss piece of it and it can feel more ineffective and, and also, um, frustrating, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't feel frustrating to work towards, um, positive embodiment. Yeah. Yeah. You can actually see and feel better sooner when we're not so fixated on this weight loss outcome. So that I think is a very hopeful message and a very accurate message. I think the more I was just sharing that the more I do this work in this different, slightly different, but pivotally different way than I used to do it, the more rewarding it is because it's more effective and who doesn't like to feel effective in their life. Right. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, I think, thank you for sharing that because I think that's very important. And, um, yeah, well, we could talk all day. There's so much to understand about this. I feel like we could definitely do a part two, (laughs) but for now we'll switch to our motivation questions that we do at the end of our interviews. So in terms of, um, intrinsic motivation, I'd love to know one thing that you have truly intrinsic motivation for. So as a reminder, this is, you do it for the inherent satisfaction of the behavior, like you enjoy it, find it challenging or satisfying in its own right. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is definitely for me movement. Um, and it always has been. And it's so funny. I see it in my, my <laughs> three-year-old daughter too. She immediately finishes, finishes her dinner and gets up and sprint circles around the table, <laughs> um, awesome. like, which, you know, I, yeah, my uh, kids are yeah. always wanting to not be in their seats. I'm like, <laughs> I guess it's good. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Yeah. And I think I, um, 
I, you know, from, from a young age, I was even, you know, I was a competitive soccer player and I ran track and I played volleyball and I, um, well, for one year I was admittedly not good at volleyball, but I was always seeking out, <laughs> yeah. you know, different things. And, you know, I've, um, you know, I've run, you know, four marathons and several half marathons. I just love, like, I, like every day I get up and I'm like, when can I exercise? And there's no stress attached to it. Um, I definitely give myself, you know, um, more than enough rest days. And if I don't feel like it, I won't do it. I'm very much intuitive about it, but I truly enjoy it. I truly enjoy you know, yoga, cycling, um, lift, weightlifting in particular. Um, and you know, yoga is again, very beneficial for PCOS and lots of good yeah. research there, but anyway, nice. but for me, it's, yeah. it would definitely be movement. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds good. And what about, so when we think about shifting from a should or more external motivation to, uh, choose to, what's an example of a behavior that was always a should for you. You might've struggled to do, but you figured out a way to do it more consistently because you value it. Even maybe if you don't always love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so funny thinking about this, this question. I, um, I know you mentioned like cooking doesn't come naturally to you. Like when I went to college, I didn't know how to boil pasta. I was like, how do you get it in there? Once you like, how do you, it doesn't bend. And like, I, t- oh I didn't my gosh, that's make eggs. I mean, I, I grew up, you know, uh, my parents divorced and, and, you know, it was like canned ravioli and uh, corn dogs and, uh-huh. you know, very picky. Like I wouldn't eat, uh, I, was, I would do like pizza blanca. So I wouldn't even eat tomato sauce or a peanut butter sandwich. Cause it was too gross. I didn't eat an orange, even though they were at soccer practice, um, oh and soccer gosh. games at halftime. I, I didn't eat an orange until grad school. Uh, so for me, fruits and vegetables, like, honestly, they did not come. I've worked really hard at, mm. you know, I don't like mushrooms. I'm going to make a concerted effort to figure out how I like mushrooms. And so I, you know, would start oh. experimenting and like pushing myself. And I almost wonder now that I work with, um, RFID, avoidant restrictive, uh, feeding eating disorder, like, yeah. Um, I, or feeding intake disorder, I almost wonder if there was something going on when I was a kid, I was extremely picky. So that Sean, I think, uh, now, you know, I'm mostly plant-based I eat all sorts of vegetables, except for olives. Cause they taste like cleaning products. And like, but it was, <laughs> it was, it was really not easy. Like it was really yeah. you know, taking cooking classes too. And like, oh, uh-huh. had some disastrous, um, cooking trials and like inedible things that have occurred. Um, but I think now I've gotten to a place where I'm actually a pretty good cook and I really crave, you know, salads and greens and roasted veggies and, and include them. So it sounds like it was a, it sounds like it was a process, but like, yeah, how exactly did you do it? Like you said, it sounds like you just were like, this is important to me. I'm going to keep trying and just trying different ways. Like, are there certain, cause that's, that's great. And I think a lot of people do have this idea of like, I just don't like these foods. I didn't grow up eating these foods. And it's very emotionally ingrained, right? These ideas of like what I don't like. Yes. and it's, it's hard to untangle those. I have a lot of conversations about, about that and like, kind of like easing into like, this is the process. Let's start really, really small. Um, yeah. so yeah, for me, it definitely, it, it was an active process over literally the last 16 years of, of, and, and luckily I married a man who's actually a good cook. And, um, and so that really helped, you know, like, yeah. and, uh, encouraging me, but, um, but yeah, it, it was the process of saying, you know, I'm going to order this thing off the menu that, that is scary. That's a little bit scary and it's causing some food anxiety for me, this, mm-hmm. this, you know, vegetable, whatever it is. And, uh, 
And over time you realize that your tastes actually change. Like your body actually wants these foods and craves them. Um, But we have to figure out like, Hey, if you grew up with really mushy broccoli, like that's not nothing wrong with the broccoli. That's just Mm-hmm. you know, that wasn't cooked the way that, that yeah. it should be for you to enjoy it. So anyway, so yeah. Were you aware, been, like, uh, it sounds like that at some level you were aware that I value eating these foods. Were you, uh, were you very consciously aware of that and why that was important to you? Or was it more of just like, eh, I know I want to be doing this. Do you know what I mean? Like, were you like, this right. is, I want to model this for my kids. I want to live to an old age, like that kind of thing. Or was it sort of just, I'm just curious how conscious it was versus just like, cause that's one of the things we often talk about is like making those value based autonomous, like choosing for you. And that's, that is why we always ask this question. Cause it's hard. It's challenging, um, to, to make that shift, but uh, yeah, I think, you know, I, I love that this question is about, you know, um, or the previous one was about intrinsic motivation. Um, so for me, it, it truly was, and I find, you know, um, there's the health belief model, like, of course, right. Like we know we have to, um, we're not going to change until we start seeing like, oh, maybe something could happen to me. Right. And that motivates, but so it was actually, um, a couple of things. It was around the time I mentioned in my like mid twenties, when I was having all these skin issues, I was very stressed and, you know, working, um, a few jobs during grad school, actually, um, it was, there was a lot going on, but actually my, my dad had been, um, diagnosed when he was 48 with congestive heart failure as well, which was idiopathic. He's very, very young. Um, to have that. Oh, sorry. Whenever <laughs> I say it, I get tearful. Yeah, he's, so he's yeah. still okay, but it's like, it's been a very, you know, um, thank God for modern medicine. But for me at that time, like, so it was the sort of like combination of seeing like, Hey, is there a genetic predisposition here? And I better start taking better care of myself. Also with all of these sort of, you know, what is going on with my body, you know, yeah. acne and the cycles. And, you know, I, I, I get migraines and all sorts of stuff where I was like, you know, so that was really also the, you know, um, the start of grad school to be a dietitian, right? So like my okay. undergrad was mm-hmm. not in nutrition. So, so Sean, I think it was the kind of the perfect storm of like mm-hmm. saying, okay, like let's take a step back here and let's start small. And it was really those like small, timely, not trying to change everything at once. It wasn't a diet. It wasn't anything concerned about weight. It was just like, I need to start actively seeking out a better way of being here to feel better. And also again, um, you know, with concern for what, what are my genetic predispositions? Yeah, definitely. I I really appreciate you sharing that because I think that that's, you know, everyone's journey looks different in terms of how they make a behavior change. But one of the ways that we often do it is like, we're looking at, whether we're consciously like, these are my values. A lot of times we're not right. But we're thinking about what matters to me, right? What's really important. What is, um, yeah. How is this going to impact like behaviors? How's this going to impact? And how am I feeling too? I mean, that's what I talk about a lot is like, you know, I use a tool um, called an MSQ multi-symptom questionnaire with a lot of my clients where we go through all these different symptoms that for some people they've normalized symptoms Mm -hmm. that are Mm -hmm. not normal. Right. And yeah. then are based on inflammation or whatever else, you know, is happening in their bodies, maybe some subclinical nutritional injuries anyway, but, but really being able to say like, Oh, you know, these things aren't normal. And how do you want to feel? And pulling, Ooh, I might have to get that, that measure from you. Cause that's, that's definitely yeah. what happened to our family when we, we actually switched to plant-based kind of just cause I was in a, 
uh, I, we didn't switch totally, but we started trying some plant-based stuff because I was in a cardiology clinic and I was like, well, we're recommending this. Like, I might as well give it a try. Like, why not? And then we were like, whoa, right. we feel a lot better. Yeah, we didn't even yeah, know we felt amazing. bad. <laughs> like, it's amazing. I thought I felt fine, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think, and it's a process and it's sort of like keeping yourself accountable to tr- pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, trying new things. Right. But then, and then of course, that's a, that's a really cool example of a bunch of things, but it's a really cool example of how taste can change. Because again, we have these beliefs of like, I'm never going to like that. Right. And maybe you will, maybe you won't, maybe you'll, maybe you'll never like yeah. olives. But how does but you like, cook it? You know? <laughs> yeah, that's a big deal. Cause I've always struggled yeah. with that too. Cause I actually grew up eating a decent amount of vegetables. So I'm like, I don't know, I guess I just like it because of that. It's like, well, that's not actually necessarily true because look at your example. So I appreciate that. That's, that's important. Um, so where can people learn more about you, the work you're doing, connect with you, and we can include any links that you want in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you for asking. So, um, I currently have, um, a a couple different places you can find me. Um, I have my own virtual private practice that does nutrition coaching, intuitive eating coaching for, um, you know, largely women's health, although, you know, in disordered eating, chronic dieting, and that's bodacious nutrition.com. So I can, you know, I work with people all over the country through, um, through bodacious. And then I also, you know, sort of work with mind, body health, which is in Arlington, Virginia and Washington, DC. And I work with clients locally there, um, for eating disorders, disordered eating, PCOS, you know, IBS things. Um, so I do have office space, um, locally in Arlington, Virginia. Awesome. Well, we will link both of those and thank you so much for your time, your knowledge. I'm really excited to, to share this and glad we had this conversation. Sean, thank you so much for having me. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. So let's wrap up with some takeaways quickly here from today's conversation. So our main takeaways are PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome is a syndrome and the diagnosis process really isn't super clear cut. There's a lot of different phenotypes or ways that it can show up and ways that it can look. And there's a lot of gray area in it. And standard medical training and process doesn't do great with gray areas. And so for this reason, you're going to want to work to educate yourself. But most importantly, finding a provider who is willing to learn with you and do some investigative work. I know we talk on this podcast about health at every size and providers aligned with that. And that um, is great if you can find that. But I've also found that there are a lot of providers who are not specifically aligned with that specific movement. Um, Maybe they're open to it or they just haven't heard of it, but they are still really willing to look at root cause and not focus on weight. So just because you don't find that specific type of provider, I, I think that there's lots of really great providers that I've come across that are willing to learn and work with women in a really empowering way. Other take-homes is if you have PCOS or you think you might, it's 100% not your fault. There is a genetic basis, and the ways we typically treat people who have this set of symptoms is really severely lacking, very often not evidence-based, and very often the advice like lose weight, follow a low-carb diet, is actually going to likely result in most likely weight gain over time, increased insulin resistance, stress, perhaps low-grade inflammation, which all of which may worsen the underlying causes of PCOS. So 
third takeaway is work with someone who's going to help you find the root cause. So this is essential. And again, standard medicine is a treatment model. So treating symptoms, not causes. But if you want relief long term, which I know you do, analysis of root cause is likely needed. And all women or persons deserve this. And let's keep asking for it and searching until we find someone who will help walk alongside you to think of your body more holistically and, and really focus on how to help in a, an effective way. And final take home is that you do have things you can control and you can feel empowered. So we want to look at food relationship often as number one, depending on how strained that is for you, because there's an immense source of stress there and guilt and shame is going to probably prompt more feelings of out of control eating, binge eating, emotional eating. Um, so, you know, then you can look after you've looked at that and, and had been really honest with yourself at looking at that. Then you can look at these areas of gentle nutrition. We have a list of that in the blog, and we just talked about it in the interview. Also, you know, joyful movement or exercise, stress management, among other areas. And next week, check out, make sure you check out my episode with Dr. Teresa Osmer next week, because we're going to talk about some topics that overlap with this. Um, that is also going to be really, really important in some other like effective therapies. So I'm pretty excited for that. So as always, thank you for being here. Can't wait to hear what your thoughts are in this episode. Particularly, this is a strong area of interest for me. So if you're like, this makes sense, but I'm trying to understand this piece, or I want to learn more about this, or what questions do you have about how this applies to you, make sure you reach out to me, Instagram at psychology.of.wellness, or you can email me at support at drshawnhondorp.com. All right, everyone, have a wonderful week and a great day. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.